Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from BearMarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your marriage and your sex life. I have probably one of my favorite interviews coming up in this episode 208 of the Bear Marriage Podcast. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Before we do, um, a big shout out to our patrons who help to support this podcast and keep it going. And you can be a part of that movement too. You can join our patron group for as little as $5 a month. Our Facebook group is awesome. I just love it. And that's at patreon.com slash Marriage. Also, when you buy our Great Sex Rescue Toolkit or any of our merch, you also help to support what we do and keep it um, keep it going. And we have some awesome new merch designs, including the amazing Biblical Manhood. So check that out. I'll put the links in the description. But another thing that you may not know about um, is that every Friday we send out an email. And that email goes out to about 46,000 people. And it's not written by me. It's written by Rebecca. 46,000 people get to read Rebecca's words each week. And honestly, they're amazing. Last week, her email subject line was, have you seen a sexy gorilla? And it was all about taking apart um, a survey question by Shanti Felden. It was an amazing email. We got such great feedback. And if you're part of the email list, you're also going to hear about where I'm speaking and if I'm ever coming anywhere near you. So I'm going to put a link to that. Um, It's just once a week in email. I'm not going to bug you more than that. But then you won't miss any podcast. You won't miss any blog post. You'll get all the highlights. And so you can click through and read what you want to read. So check that out. I would love to see a subscribe um, because I want more to join our community. And now without further ado, here we go with Taryn Williams, one of my favorite interviews of all time. Well, I am so glad to bring on the podcast from Cape Town, South Africa, uh, Taryn Williams, who is the pastor of Signal Church in the middle of Cape Town City. So Taryn, thank you for being here. Such an honor to be with you. You know, I think I think you're my first South African guest. So this is exciting. And we had a lot of South Africans fill out our survey for the Great Sex Rescue and for She Deserves Better. So I know there's a lot of people on the continent of Africa who are um, paying attention to what we're doing. And and, uh, I know you and I have sort of had mutual connections and I'm so glad to have you. I first found out about you from your book, How God Sees Women. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which is so good. And everybody, it is like free on Kindle Unlimited. Like this is, (laughs) Taryn wants you to read this. So I'm going to put a link to it. Yes, How God Sees Women. (laughs) It's really good. And so many of you have questions about, you know, submission and are women allowed to to speak in church and do women need to follow men and do men need to lead women? And so this this book answers it by going through the Bible. So it really gets into like what it means to follow Jesus and the biblical pastors. So I really appreciate that. But what I really want to talk to you about is how you came to write it, because I find your story really fascinating. So this was the book I never imagined I would write. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, basically... A fantastic church in Cape Town. It really is a fantastic church. I joined it when it was about 100 people. And after 20 years, it had grown to 4,000 people, 10 congregations, a real force in the city of Cape Town. Also found my wife there, uh, which is always handy. Yes. And we had five children together, believe it or not. And it was a, <laughs> it's a multi-site church. So, you know, one church became 10 congregations under one banner called whatever the name of the church is. So we would have hundreds of people joining the church at the time, and we would explain the values of our church. And the, the one that we knew we had to get past them, you know, because as mm-hmm. the transformer would leave, we've got to tell them up front, kind is, care is kind. 
Uh, mm -hmm. We would explain why only men were elders in these congregations and why in marriages we encouraged men to lead their wives. And I would come in to do that part. I usually was sharp in my communication ability and uh, quite winsome. And yes. I would, you know, have five minutes to just pitch it to the new people. And almost always um, they still joined. And 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 sometimes I'd even get uh, applause because I, we pitched it as our church being faithful to the scriptures despite cultural pressure. Right. And uh, and I, so I certainly, uh, you know, uh, drank the Kool-Aid and believed that it was good for you. Um, and then what happened is living in quite a educated part of Cape Town, South Africa, a lot of women in the marketplace, women in leadership, highly educated women in this part of the world, the questions would come, uh, you know, are you sure this is the teaching of scripture? And uh, and then a couple leaders in our church that were really trusted expressed some of their doubts about our position, uh, which is fine. I mean, we like to express those doubts. And they pointed out that we didn't have a position paper. In other words, we had a five-minute elevator pitch on our position. And uh, we'd done a couple sermons, you know, where we said cute things to make it sound like this is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't have a, a well-thought-out theological defense. And I had handed over my congregation, and I, I was freed up now to really strengthen our theological muscles. So I was asked especially to lean into this question <laughs> and provide a defense. Mm -hmm. And um, I basically had uh, extra time in my hands, and I'm a reader. I love to read 20 things on a subject, not just one thing. And I knew that I needed to hear the strongest arguments against our position, because, mm -hmm. you know, you can't caricature the other side and then shoot it down. You've got to present it in the strongest form. Tim Keller taught this to me. And then in a winsome way, you dismantle it. Right. And <laughs> I basically read uh, books and I, I, I read PhDs uh, on both sides. And I became an expert in complementarianism for the first time, interestingly. Mm -hmm. I understood complementarianism better than I did. It's amazing how many uh, complementarian church leaders are actually not that well-versed in their own complementarianism. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I understood complementarianism really well. And I started to understand egalitarianism and uh I, it dawned on me that actually the stronger case was with the egalitarian interpretation of scripture. Because there's two things involved here. There's the exegesis of individual passages. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's still some passages that you could go this way or that way. But it was especially the synthesis of all of the passages that I noticed that complementarianism was particularly weak. And I got this picture in my mind that I couldn't shake, that uh, complementarianism was... It had lots of arguments in it, but each of them was, was, it didn't stand on, each argument didn't stand on its own. It was like a, a flimsy card. And it was only when you lent all the cards together in a certain way, you now had a, you know, a house of cards, but what a flimsy house. And then, um, then realizing this is a fairly substantial thing, the choice of only men to be leaders in a church, because I mean, if you only got men in a room making decisions, that means uh, you're you're chopping out the voice of women at a decision-making uh, level. And being a church leader for my entire adult life, you know, those leadership teams make 50 to 100 decisions a year. And you want as much wisdom as you can into that, that decision-making. So as much as we emphasize complementarity, dawned on me we were cutting out the women's voice at that <laughs> senior-most level. 
and then yeah, because complementarity is supposed to say that men and women together show you know the image of god reveal the image of god but if you're cutting off women then you're not actually believing that yeah (laughs) that that is the great irony of complementarianism the two places where a woman might be able to shape at things is the the, the interpretation and the preaching of scripture and the decision making for the church, including its you know pastoral interventions on its own people. And you've got women cut out of those two uh, key moments. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but back to my story, um, I realized I had got it wrong. And suddenly that verse in Proverbs meant so much more to me. Uh, you know, when you hear one perspective on something you can think it's right until you hear another view and you realize hang on there's more to this picture I'm paraphrasing that verse in Proverbs and I had come into a church where uh, you in a sense you, you you submit to the leadership of the church you get taught the doctrines of that particular church you rise up because you subscribe to you know the party lines of that church but after 20 years of leadership in a church I think you reach a point where you're allowed to rethink some of the things that were taught to us I mean, surely surely there should be a corrective in churches where we don't just guarantee that interpretations of scripture and and various passages is is kind of codified and ossified from generation to generation when uh those of us that are passionate about theological study know that there's so much to be gleaned from hearing diverse takes and later scholarship on passages that we've all been grappling with i realized i had got it wrong so i i immediately got hold of two of the other guys who were in senior leadership and i said guys i think i've changed my mind on this one they put me into this theological investigation mode so i didn't feel bad it's not like i'd gone wondering i'd (laughs) gone exactly where they told me to go and um and and then these guys actually responded really well. They said, wow, well, maybe we do need to go back to the books on this and at least open up our hands and be open to the possibility we'd got this one wrong. And so started, a, a I think, a year or two-year-long process of theological conversations. But um, I would say those theological conversations were corrupted because uh, although we maybe set out to say we were open-handed, it became evident that uh, the senior leadership of this church actually had already decided where this was going. Right. And um, I kind of hung in there because I was just sure if I could explain to them how uh, how we got it wrong in this passage and that passage and this passage and that passage and how we completely missed this passage and that passage and these angles in this conversation, I was sure that if I could just take them through the same intellectual, exegetical, theological journey I'd gone on, I could get us there. And uh, it really was one of the most disappointing experiences of my life. And it actually was naive of me to think. In my book, I speak about the danger of trusting God for a sociological miracle (laughs) where where you've got 10 senior leaders of this church, congregation leaders. I was hoping for a change. Now I'm trusting that all 10 of those leaders simultaneously a transition (laughs) it's something that actually was a kind of miracle that I could see the errors of my own interpretation I basically um, realized that I'd cut off the branch I was sitting on and and I couldn't see myself leading in this church much longer because I'd become 
so convinced that the church, there wouldn't only be theologically accurate to include women in leadership and uh, giving them the privilege to preach with authority like we gave the men. It wouldn't only be better theologically correct to teach mutual submission to marriages. It would be healthier. I became convinced that that not only was it biblical, that it was better. And uh, it was quite a painful experience for me to part ways in, in that particular church where I planned on giving the rest of my life. And um, and I understood where they were coming from. It, uh, because a lot of churches are, are enmeshed in denominational movement structures. It's not as simple as just the leaders of that church changing their view. That would mean a kind of a, a, a radical ecclesial rearrangement of you know alliances to other churches and unless uh, you have some conviction like i had it's easy enough to just say to freeze up and say no right. and uh, so i i basically uh, ended 2019 in that church and then i covid hit and i thought i was going to go overseas but um the world became very small never i didn't even get to go across the road never mind across the sea <laughs> <laughs> lockdown and then i i wrote i uh, wrote my first book that i put on amazon what's so amazing about scripture uh, how to read it right and tap into its power and mm-hmm. i've was always been very interested in the interpretation of scripture and then the following year i thought it's time to write i'd given enough time uh, away from my previous church to write how god sees women mm-hmm. and i wanted to now take the reader on the exegetical, theological, personal journey I'd gone through that I'd hoped that I could share with the other leaders that I never really got to. But hey, um, I was going to democratize this information and take it to whoever would read it. And I hoped a lot would. And I've been delighted how many have. Yes. <laughs> and it is really good. I will put, and again, I'm going to put links. So just go to the podcast notes. There's links to both of both of Taryn's books, How God Sees Women and What's So Amazing About Scripture. Um, and you can pick them up. They're they're wonderful. They're inexpensive. And and yes, let's let's open our minds and our hearts and hear what God has to say. So I love it. Um you're in a new church now. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I am in a new church. I've, uh, so two years after I finished up the previous church, I uh, agreed to come. I wanted to, I wasn't sure this was the church for me. They needed a pastor. And I was visiting with my family. My wife and kids loved the church. And I wasn't so sure. So I agreed to a six-month interim leadership of this church part-time. And um, and after six months, I said, okay, I'm done. Um have you found anyone yet? I haven't found anyone. <laughs> and two years later, I'm still there. And I've realized it was actually God's way of, um, you know, getting me to become a permanent leader of this church. And if you're the, the question I'm sure in everyone's minds, is it a complementarian church? And the answer is it's not. It's a mutualist church. So I have the joy of being on a leadership team uh, where there are half women and half men. There's two couples, a man and a woman, a man and a woman. There's a wife whose husband's not on the leadership team. There's a husband whose wife's not on the leadership team. And there's a single woman. And I experience again and again the the richness of diverse perspectives to make better decisions, to handle um, intricate pastoral situations with the wisdom, not just of men, uh, but of women. And I still remember... uh, 
I'm sending a, a, an email. Usually you make decisions in person, but I needed a quick decision. And I sent this email out to the leaders and I, I wanted them to give me a thumbs up or a no or a let's wait. And uh, the women and the men, you know, they all gave a thumbs up to this particular decision. And I remember saying to Julie, I've been a pastor for most of my adult life. And not once did I have to get the permission of a bunch of women to make a decision. <laughs> and what a wonderful feeling it was. It's, I'm living it. <laughs> women have got authority to, you know, they're exercising their gifts of leadership too. And, um, and then the other thing is its emphasis on mutualist marriages. Um, one of the things that struck me in this church is, especially um, when, uh, when they're little children, sometimes one parent basically are in, you know, outside of the meeting looking after the little child. And men and women would take turns doing this. It was also a new experience for me. The complementary church, roughly speaking, you know, the, the woman gets to do that. She takes one for the team. You know, the man's got to be there, especially if you're a leader. And um, so I've also had the joy of seeing real equality in in marriages. Yeah, that's lovely. Can I so, share with you the first time I changed my mind on Genesis chapter one and two? Yeah. Because when you've been a convinced complementarian, you, you've really made up your mind about Ephesians five. You made up your mind about one Timothy two. You made up your mind about one Corinthians eleven. You made up your mind about Genesis 2, and you've taught that Adam was the leader of Eve before the fall, not just yes. after, after the fall. And, <laughs> and you, you've preached your eight points that you stole from a Mark Driscoll sermon back in the day where he <laughs> made the same case and he was drawing it from you know, John Piper book. You know, so you, you're yes. so you're so into these arguments. And uh, when I was, you know, evaluating the matter, I remember being in this very room, sitting at a table just five meters to my left. And writing this list of all the arguments for why Adam was the leader of Eve before the fall, and then studying the scholarship and giving the counter arguments, and realizing that the controversial arguments were actually on the complementarian side, not the not not this side. That 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 the author of Genesis is not arguing for and not trying to encode this idea that Adam was the leader of Eve before the fall, and that becomes especially evident in. Genesis 3, verse 16, where as a consequence of the fall, he will now rule you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so mm -hmm. clearly, so you've got Genesis 1, you've got Adam and Eve co-ruling. Then comes the fall. What a tragedy. Now he will rule her. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I remember going through this list. And in a moment, I, I realized I got Genesis wrong. I got Genesis wrong. I, I mean, I taught on it. I taught wrongly. And it was actually quite an emotional moment. To see that God wanted men and women to be partners and, and allies and equal and collaborate and complementarity. It's all in there. And Julie walked past. I was so excited, my wife. So I said, Julie, <laughs> Julie. And I wanted to tell you what I just told you. And as I looked at her, instead of words coming out of my mouth, tears came out of my eyes. And then I realized that the power of theology to blind because it was like I saw my wife as if for the first time. Oh. I saw her as my Genesis 2 verse 18, Isa connector, who was strong where I was weak. Of course, I'd appreciated my wife before, and I wasn't a, I wasn't even a, I wasn't a, a leader type guy, even in my complementarian marriage. But I saw her, and, um, and I realized how important theology is to change the perception 
of things. That's where I came up with the idea to call my book, How God Sees Women. If we could just see marriage like God sees it and see men and women like God sees them. It, it fits one of my favorite verses, and I may have this scripture wrong, so forgive me. Katie, you can write it on the screen in YouTube or say it if I've got it wrong. I think it's Luke 8, 44, might be 7, 44, yeah. but um, it's when Jesus is dining with the Pharisees and the woman yeah. comes in to anoint him and he says to them, do you see this woman? Lovely. You know? yeah. And he's inviting us. And of course they saw her because they'd all been thinking about her and thinking yeah. about how scandalous this was. No. So it's not like they hadn't noticed her. So Jesus wasn't saying, do you notice her? Do you, do you note that she is here? He was saying, do you truly see her? Yeah. You know, and he's, in, love... he's inviting us to yeah. actually see yeah. women. And I, yeah, that, I find that very emotional, <laughs> just That's, that we have a God that... who sees us. And then if you connect that verse, I think it's Luke chapter 13, where Jesus is in a synagogue. It's one of the rare times in the gospels where Jesus is in a synagogue and he does a miracle in a synagogue. Mm-hmm. And there's a woman who's been crippled for, was it 18 years or 12 years? I forget. She's been yeah. crippled for many years. And um, and it says these words, and Jesus saw her. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, he doesn't just stop seeing her. She's buckled over and he says, woman, you are free. And she stands up straight. It's a mm-hmm. beautiful story. But then the, the next part is so illustrative of, of the downside of misogyny and uh, patriarchy when it really gets nasty the synagogue ruler is um, so irritated with Jesus that he has healed this woman so just think about that she's been in his congregation for mm-hmm. over 10 years she's been buckled over in pain and he doesn't notice her until she stands up straight mm-hmm. <laughs> she stands up straight next to her brothers who've been standing up straight and then Jesus reprimands him for basically caring about animals more than about this woman. And, yeah. and that's also where he calls her daughter of Abraham. I, 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 if, I, if I'm right, there actually aren't any other historical sources in up until that time in Jewish literature of women being called daughters of Abraham. He pens a name for her. Right. And, uh, it's all sons it, of Abraham. Thought, yeah. Yes. And just hinges on that those words. Jesus saw her. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so Taryn, let me ask you this. Why do you think you were able to change your mind? Because I know a lot of people can't get to that point, even if like, I've heard so many people say to me something like, okay, I know all your arguments sound really good. And I know I can't argue against it. But quite frankly, I just don't want to believe it. Mm. And then they let it go. And obviously they're risking so much if they mm. change their mind, but you risked, you threw, you, you gave away everything, right? Yeah. Like this was your identity. This was the church that you <laughs> had pastored. This is the church. It was, it was all your friends. You met your wife there, you know, your, your kids had grown up there. This was everything. Yeah. So that's a hard, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, I think it had something to do with being in church leadership for 20 years and not just five years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you reach a point where you're, you're, you're also starting to see through the overconfidence of youth, you know, where you've mm-hmm. where you figured out everything and now you're going to run into the world with all your certainty. And mm-hmm. uh, 
I, I'd come to a point in my own study of scripture where I was comfortable with things that were very clear in the Bible and things that were less clear. And I also, I personally found it quite uh, intellectually exciting that I may have got some scriptures wrong and through exposure to superior scholarship, I could, uh, you know, somebody could help me. So I think that something had clicked in my mind that I was on that wavelength of openness to um, unlearning and seeing scripture more clearly. Just before that, I'd, I'd really uh, stumbled across um, how central kingdom is to New Testament theology. And yet for 1900 years, the church had almost lost that as its theological mm -hmm. center. Now all scholarship has come around to, wow, we have reclaimed something that was in first century uh, uh, theology that was kind of lost through church mm -hmm. history. So I'd already made some of these discoveries, uh, you know, similar to the doctrine of atonement. I fixated on penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus died to absorb God's wrath on our behalf. And then realizing actually that's just a small component of a much bigger story. The other theories of atonement and the importance of Christus Victor. So you, hearing somebody who was excited that I may have missed things in scripture and really hoped that I could, I prayed that God would help me to see what I'd missed. I think I was actually praying that prayer, God, show me where I've got it wrong. I had no idea what it would be that I got wrong. <laughs> Right. So I think I think the Holy Spirit had already been softening my mind and getting me open to rethinking things. Yeah. Um, the other thing is I must admit to a bit of naive, naivety or naivete in that I was I was so established in this church that I couldn't imagine I could lose my place in it, <laughs> especially <laughs> when, where I had such a, a loud theological say. So I would say the importance of of intellectual curiosity and and humility in the face of scripture i tracked with the southern baptists throwing rick warren out with such overconfidence and mm -hmm. i i read something rick warren said that i thought was so insightful he says the difference between a conservative and a fundamentalist a conservative uh, believes in the inerrancy of scripture a fundamentalist believes in the inerrancy of their interpretation of yeah. scripture yeah, I remember that quote too and thought it was so good. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think I had, um, I, I could, I was starting to tell the difference in my own life. Mm -hmm. uh, they, I wanted to be very sure on the things that scripture was clear on. And then I wanted to be more curious on the things that scripture maybe wasn't so clear on, where I maybe been overconfident in the past through hearing only one side where all along Proverbs says, hey, listen to the other side for the sake of wisdom. Right. Um, and while you were going through all of this, what about your wife? Was that, was she so, tracking with you or? Fascinating thing is my wife only became fully convinced when she read my book. Oh, wow. <laughs> she remained, you know, for a person, if you've been living it for your, your whole life, it's not like you cannot be change your mind in a day when it's taken years to come to believe in something mm. so even though i would you know explain one passage to her another passage she still just didn't see the whole picture she would she was just getting it piecemeal and i only when she read my book she actually edited my book she's a writer herself mm -hmm. and um and uh, she had her own aha moment reading scripture and she actually writes i asked her to write my foreword and uh, interestingly, I, I, I asked her to write an endorsement. I thought it would be quite cute because you've got all of these praise for how God sees women thing. And I've got some 
top biblical scholars in the world endorsing my book, I thought I've got to throw one in for my wife. So I <laughs> her to, to write an endorsement. She thought I was asking her to write the foreword. And she mm-hmm. came back to me with two pages of this foreword. And I didn't have the heart to, to, to actually just wanted the little paragraph. I needed somebody that the world knew to write the foreword. And then I read her foreword. And that's how she got the job. She, did, she wrote something really beautiful. But she changed her mind when she read the book. And wow. um, fully changed her mind when she, she read the book. And then the, 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 the journey is different for men and women. I mean, since I've written the book, I have conversations every two or three days with someone from around the world getting hold of me or coming to see me, church leaders that are uh, open to changing their mind. And uh, guys who go through this journey tends to speak about the kind of the exegetical theological process. It's not as emotional for us because we haven't, we've we still had the privileges of, of, of being mm-hmm. in charge. That it's the women who who lived as less than or under men realize that in a sense they've been duped by a doctrine that is essentially a misconstruction of scripture, that they then get plunged into an emotional layers of emotional processing, anger, uh, hurt, disbelief. <laughs> and right. uh, and I, I would say um Julie is a particularly robust, positive person. So, so some of my f- women friends who changed their mind went through a particularly painful process. Julie's pain was counterbalanced by her uh, robustness and positivity. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, an interesting thing when she changed her mind is how she um she she muscled up in our marriage as my equal partner. So although uh, in your book, The Great Six Rescue, I mean, you make the point that most complementarians don't actually practice it in their marriage. They, mm-hmm. they still listen to each other, make decisions together. Uh, we had one of those kind of marriages, but still the fact that at the end of the day, I might be able to play the trump card, although I never did, just caused Julie to maybe hang back and to be deferential. Once it dawned on her that she was my full equal, um, she came out strong <laughs> and, and, and I had to make some adjustments to realize I have got a, I've got an easy connector. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have, I don't have an assistant. That's how John Piper translates Genesis 2 verse 8. Uh, yeah, I, I'm about to do a fixed it for you <laughs> on that. So maybe I'll, I'll have that fixed it for you run right after this podcast because I just made it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not my assistant. She's my partner, my strong partner. And uh, she she quickly uh, played that role. And probably just in time because uh, she became the main breadwinner. <laughs> a lot of guys struggled with that, but my theology adjusted just in time to have no problems at all with the fact that she was bringing in more money than me. And I'm really grateful to God. Now we obviously both come to the party financially. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that happened is she she then uh, insisted that I, I I play a stronger role in in the in family life because again the complementarian roles puts the woman as the housemaker, the husband supporter, the child rearer. And although I was a properly involved husband, there was just enough obvious examples where I, we still kind of assumed that uh, she would carry more of a weight. And although I've not caught up to her domestic omnicompetence, <laughs> I've simply been um, realizing that my doctrine does not hide my ineptness in that area anymore. <laughs> so, so it's been really good for Julie and I to try to team together more in the in the running of a home and in the raising up of children. 
Right. And how have your kids been? I mean, that must have been a very, like, it must have been traumatic for your family to have to leave the church where presumably they had friends and, yeah. and, uh, I mean, I don't want you to share their confidences because no, they no, may no. not have given consent, but, yeah. you know, just generally. <laughs> yeah. The children, we all experienced loss mm-hmm. and the children experienced the loss, uh, um, of, also something about uh, being a pastor's child of, in a big church, you know, you're, everywhere you go in this church, everybody knows your dad and your mom. Mm-hmm. And um, so they kind of just became <laughs> just our children and they lost a lot of their friends. I praise God for this new church because um, they have now found a new community. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I've seen in the same way, Julie and I have experienced a restoration. Our children have experienced a, a restoration, but certainly there's been a cost across the whole family. Right, right. Would you like some help in going to your pastor, small group leader, a women's ministry leader about some of these issues as you're thinking about them? We've got that help in the Great Sex Rescue Toolkit. I put this together. It's great handouts. There's so many of them. They're professionally designed that share in a nutshell our findings from our surveys for the Great Sex Rescue and She Deserves Better. And when you take those to your pastor, to your Christian school principal, um, to your Christian school teacher, whoever it might be that you want to talk to, it gives you you an easy way to start those conversations so that you don't need to feel nervous. Uh, so check that out. It's a pay what you want. There's it. I've priced it super cheap, but you're allowed to just enter however much you want to pay for it. We want to make it available to you. We want to make price not an issue, but whatever you donate, that helps support our ministry and helps us do more stuff like this to get these toolkits into your hands. So check out the Great Sex Rescue Toolkit. The link is in the podcast notes. Um. One of the things that I struggle with and that, you know, because so much of my ministry is like, how do we get people to change their mindset? Because if we can change our mindset, if we can see God in a different way, if we can understand marriage in a different way, we'd see so much more flourishing. And so I'm always trying to come up with like new ways to explain this. And, you know, and if they just see how, what this verse is really saying, then, then yeah. if maybe I'll be able to convince them. Um but the truth is that you can't convince people, like you said, intellectual arguments don't always do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so much work being done on cognitive bias. Mm-hmm. How um, our mind constantly takes little shortcuts in thinking uh, for emotional, re- we're emotionally motivated in, our, in what we think is, is, is our logical reasoning. And uh, one of the most obvious things about human beings is that we are... Um, is that actually instinctively we're more interested in tribe than truth. <laughs> we might claim to really believe in truth, but uh, there comes a real advantage in life to find a tribe of people. And uh, and especially leaders of churches have gone on their own journey of trying to find their place in the body of Christ. Finally, they're in a church, they're in a tribe, they may be part of a movement or a denomination. They're, they're in. This is a precious moment. They work their life to get to this place. And then they hear a truth claim that they very quickly realize if they were to take that on or go down that road it could jeopardize their place in the tribe and uh, most people understandably uh, just freeze up and, and and can't go there right and in that case there's really nothing you can do right like yeah, yeah. except for pray and which yeah. is important and I, and and i yeah. probably don't 
I, I probably should lead with that more because I tend to yeah. lead with the intellectual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I think that's a hard thing because I know I have so many um, readers who get, they read my books, they get excited. You know, they read, they read your book or Philip Payne's book or whatever, and, and they get excited and they want their church to see it and they go to their pastor and their pastor just totally shuts them down. Yeah. And that feels devastating to them because yeah. they're like, they didn't even listen to me. Yeah. And so what would you say to that listener? The question of you're in a complementarian church. You've now started to change your mind or you've changed your mind. Um, what to do next? First thing is to pray, to think how you're going to do this one. I think you. I think at some point you've got to raise the issue. You've got to raise the issue. But you want to raise the issue wisely and well at the right time. You want a little bit of hesitation. You don't want to, you know, run in there. You you don't want to run in as a ideologue who's, you know, truth over all relationships. And if you don't, you know, there's a there's a there's a savviness to your situation. I mean, each of us is in a unique situation. Like you try and interpret that situation there. Um, but then you do need to actually sit down with the people who decide what this church believes. And, and say you have um, real doubts about the correctness of this belief. Um, and uh, would this leadership team be open to reconsidering it or to listening to other perspectives on it? So I think you don't go in too strong. You try, ask them if they are open to journey, open to uh, read something on it. You know, then you get Nijay Gupta's book or my book or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and you get into their hands or Andrew Bartlett's book, Men and Women in Christ. And, and hopefully they're open to that conversation. What makes it so scary is, um, especially it's often the case, it's w women who've got gifts of leadership that notice the wrongness of this before other women. What a lot of women do is they go, well, I've changed my mind, but it doesn't, I didn't, don't mind because I don't want to be a leader. So I don't mind being in this church. So usually it's the woman who does have a leadership sensibility or or is a teacher because she's interested in theology. <laughs> and um, and then she raises it and then the danger of gaslighting. Gaslighting mean, meaning the reason you're even raising this issue is because there's something defective about you. The fact that you are questioning this doctrine says something about something not being right with you. Well, you're and, prideful. You just want power. <laughs> And it's, and it's such an excruciating, uh, I'm think, thinking of all the women I know who tried to raise the issue and, and came off second best and uh, made to feel like there was something wrong with them for asking. Having said that, some complementarian pastors have actually been really gracious. They've said, look, yeah, for these reasons, we're not going to change our mind, but we understand where this is coming from. And there is a gracious way for a complementarian pastor to receive this feedback mm -hmm. Um, so I think you've got to raise the issue. Then the question is, can you stay in this church? You know, and uh, a lot of women end up leaving those churches, but that's a, a painful ordeal because mm -hmm. this is your, these are your people. And yet some, some find a grace to stay in those churches. So, so I think the first thing to ask is, well, if you were to leave this church, what church could you go to? And, you know, is there a church that you could go to? I mean, how many egalitarian churches are there? Well, it's wonderful they've got that right, but what about other things that matter to you? Mm -hmm. And uh, and and a lot of churches, people in small towns, there might only be three churches that you deem vibrant enough for, for you to be in, and they're all mm -hmm. complementarian. So, 
your options are limited. So you've got to ask if you can even see yourself, if there is another church you can go to. And um, I was talking just last night as Julie and I were going to sleep uh, because she knew I was going to probably to get a question like this from you. You know, do I strongly encourage women to stay in that church and just to keep hammering away at this? Maybe in 10 years time, this leadership team will change. And um, I think in the early days, I over, I, I was a bit too encouraging of women to just stay in there, just hang in there, you know. Um, and Julie says, those women are really getting hurt. The ones who deeply believe that the church is getting this wrong and trying to raise the issue. They raised it four or five times. It's They're now being misunderstood. Uh, those women, it really messes with their mind and it can be actually really damaging for them to stay in that church. And, and not only damaging for them, it can actually tear apart a lot of relationships if they stay in there mm -hmm. too long. So uh, my heart has gone out to women who've had to uh, leave churches and not just women, men. I know a lot of men who mm -hmm. objected to this doctrine and uh, try to do the exact same thing, end up leaving their churches. Um, but the cool thing about the church on planet Earth at the moment is there are you know, millions of churches. <laughs> I don't know what the exact number is. I think I something like three million churches in the world. I don't know if I'm thumb sucking that. There's yeah. a lot of churches. So if this isn't the one, you've still got decades of life on you. Yes, it'll be a painful transition. Find yeah. a church where you where where the church is getting this right, especially if this is something that means a lot to you. You know, if yeah. it's I, my my rule of I give I give this um rule of five. It's like what are the five most important things about a church for you, and if uh, you know, egalitarianism, I prefer the term mutualism, isn't one of them. Well, maybe that's not enough reason to leave the church. But mm -hmm. if it is in your top five, probably probably it's not going to work out. Yeah. Well, you know, I've I've heard that if, if all of the people who believed in mutualism got together, they would outnumber the people who believe in complementarianism. It's just yes. that they're still... Yeah, yeah. It, they're yeah. still feeling the complementarian churches so yeah. and we could just somehow yeah. all get us together yeah. <laughs> we yeah, could yeah. have we could have such vibrant churches and that's again that's yeah. one of the things that i really appreciated um hearing from the two congregants who who got in touch with me was just how vibrant your church is where people yeah. feel like their gifts really matter and I, I just thought that was such a beautiful picture um but uh, but put, picking up from your story i i think what i want some of you to hear, because I hear your stories every day. I get these emails, you know, I'm going to my pastor, no one's listening, is like, Taryn is a scholar who studied for years, and people didn't listen to him either. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't mean you did something wrong. Yeah. It doesn't mean you didn't give the argument properly. It doesn't mean that you weren't well enough prepared. It, it's not like you could have said it better. It's yeah, just that some well, people don't want to hear. Yeah. And that's not on you. Mm. That's not on you. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why Jesus talks about shaking the dust off our feet so that we yeah. can let it go. We don't need to feel badly yeah, yeah. about things, yeah, yeah. Mm. you know? And again, that doesn't mean everyone needs to leave. I don't think everyone needs to leave. I think that God calls us all to different things. And I know that looking back, I think I stayed too long in some of the churches I was in, but yeah. I also don't think that it was wrong to have gone there in the first place. So yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think there's different things. We all have different family situations and there isn't a one size fits all answer. Yeah. Um, but I, I just don't want people to feel like you did something wrong if people didn't listen. Cause that's like you said, people have emotional reasons for believing things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's hard to let go. Um, what are some of the encouraging stories that you're hearing from people who have read 
how God sees women? Well, uh, one of the really encourage early ones, I mean, so as I wrote my book, um, my book has done well all around the world, particularly in America. Thank you, America, <laughs> Canada, <laughs> and the UK. You guys are buying my book. Um, but um, I was obviously very rooted in the ecclesial church scene of Cape Town, South Africa. And I had a very early brutal experience of um, uh, one uh, a, a set of churches here in Cape Town um, writing a review of my book uh, in which the author had only read two-fifths of my book, misunderstood what he wrote, and and it basically, you know, attacked it as terrible exegesis and succumbing to um, to feminism in the culture. I mean, it was just such an unfair critique. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to receive critique because there's lots of things wrong with my book. I mean, 800 footnotes, 300 and something pages. Of course, I made mistakes, so you've got to find yeah. out what they are. But this was just a brutal, unfair one. And, and a lot of people didn't even read my book. They read the review of my book, this unfair critique, and then and now they've made up their mind. So that was a painful experience. God was merciful to me because at pretty about a few months after that, I got contacted by a leader of a of a small denomination within the Assemblies of God. So Assemblies of God is huge around the world, but mm-hmm. there's 67 Assemblies of God in South Africa called the AOG Group. And they, many of these churches are thousands of people strong. They're a vibrant denomination. And the new denominational leader had, um, previous one had died. The new guy came in and he's married to a dynamic woman who teaches as well as him and who's co-led the church with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he came across my book and he was so impacted by it that he, he ordered two copies for every one of those pastors of these 67 churches. And he said, guys, do any of you think we shouldn't go in this direction? And 67 churches, something of a sociological miracle, the thing that I I even said you shouldn't have. Uh, So Julie and I were then invited to come to their national conference where they interviewed uh, me for an hour. And then they ordained women right there in front of us. And the spirit of God came upon these, you know, the empowering of God, because that's what Biblical ordination is meant to be, and uh, just such a glorious moment. And I thought, if I'd just written my book for this movement of churches, it was yeah. so worth it. I'd take all of the pain, all of the shame, all of you know, just for these sixty-seven churches. Um, so that's been really one of the really encouraging experiences. Oh, that's so beautiful. Oh, that's that's I love that. And God does God. God gives us these moments, I think, yeah, you know, and, and they're not always where we expect yeah. either. You know, yeah. when you, <clears throat> when you wrote or when you did the original study, you thought it was to change the leaders in your own church. And yes, that's what yeah. you were praying for and hoping for, but yeah, instead yeah. it ended yeah. up being for something else. And yeah. I, I think that's really cool. Now, before we go, um, another project that you've been involved in that I've really appreciated is you've done a lot of responses to Mike Winger's series. Um, and so if any, a lot of people mentioned to me, um, that Mike Winger, who's very big on YouTube has been doing a series on, um, women in ministry and Mm -hmm. in leadership. He says that he start he was complimentarian, but he wanted to do the research and just see where the research led. And he believes, and he still is complimentarian, um, but you've been doing a, a series of responses and looking at some of his arguments. So if you are interested, I will also put a link to that. Yeah, I don't want to go into Mike story. Winger too much, but yeah, why don't you, anything the you story, want to add to that? The story is this 
one group of churches that wrote that unfair critique on my book on my social media said, don't listen to Taryn, listen to Mike Winger and slapped up the links to his mm -hmm. messages. And then I, and then I found out that so many complementarian churches were, um, you know, uh, basically this was now their go-to response because anyone in their church could watch YouTube videos for free, you know, buying a, mm -hmm. a Wayne Gruden book cost money. Um, and it, and some of our people were willing to sit through, you know, six or seven, three hour long teachings. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so this guy called Andrew Bartlett, who wrote a book similar to mine in the UK, yes. uh, we've made friends with each other. And we both said, is, is it happening in the UK too? In the UK and South Africa, never mind America, Mike Winger was the now the mo most noticed referred to complementarian teacher. Mm -hmm. And I, because he's so winsome, he's a likable man. And he says, you know, he wanted to become egalitarian, but the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And uh, he claims to, you know, deal with every egalitarian argument. So Andrew Bartlett and I then listened to these talks and went, this is really shoddy scholarship. Mm -hmm. And uh, and um, and we decided to write piece by piece responses. Mm -hmm. And then Alison, um, Beth Alison Barr, uh, you know, shared the link on her social media that we were responding. That's so. where I found it. That's where I found yeah. out about you originally. Yeah. <laughs> so you, can, you can find it by just searching for uh, uh, what, what winger gets wrong with women in ministry. <laughs> yes. You'll, yeah. And I will put links. I will put links to those yeah. responses as well for those. Cause I do have a lot of people mentioning it and I tend to send them to you. So I will, I will put a link so that people yeah. can see as we're, as we're ending up, what would be, your hope for the church where do you see things going so i think until jesus comes back there's going to be some uh, patriarchal churches my prayer is that there's far fewer of them ratio wise than they are now <laughs> mm -hmm. and um I've, I've had the privilege of um, being invited to write a paper for the lausanne conference uh for next mm -hmm. year with three other uh women from around the world on uh male female partnerships in the gospel so we got to do some fresh research of what's happening around the world outside of you know america and um and basically there is a phenomenon um underway in the last many decades of these um, powerhouse women church planters who are planting churches across the middle east across asia across africa and i've got to interview when writing this paper some of these people i've got a friend who planted a church in zambia called mongu in mongu uh it's called hope, hope church and grew to be the biggest church in the region god gave them a vision to plant churches all over western zambia i think it is and, and then they prayed for the workers and then women started arriving walking for days or hours from neighboring villages some of them disabled and literally hobbling saying hobbling saying god has sent us here tell us the gospel and God's given us a vision, spoken to us in dreams to plant churches. And uh, they were so surprised by these women coming to the game. And they, they, they said, it's like um, Paul going to Macedonia because he gets a call from the man of Macedonia, he gets there and she's surprised the man is a woman. It's Lydia. She opens <laughs> the door for them. And something of that happening. And then training up these women. And that's a very patriarchal culture. I mean, we speak about patriarchy in, in Western nations, but we know nothing of the patriarchy where women are chattel. They're, they're still property. So such strong patriarchy. Uh, basically, these women risk their lives. They, they're willing to go to, across crocodile-infested rivers. They uh, 
they they are willing to go into tribes where there's the danger of of curses because the occult is strong in Africa coming against them. The men are too scared. The women go, and these women plant these dynamic churches. And my friend uh, names six of these women to me that he's friends with. He sends me photos of them, and some of them have planted twenty to forty churches, wow. and uh, they're just going, going, going. So while we're squabbling, you know, the guys reading my book are in America. While we're squabbling about what one Timothy two says. Others are living in Joel chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, God pouring out his spirit on men mm. and women and proclaiming Christ. And of course, when you proclaim Christ, people are converted. Then very often the evangelist becomes the carer of those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now you've got women in leadership. Um, and I think that's not going to slow down. I pray that the, the, the American theologians have got such an influence on theology in the world, although most of the church is outside of America now. It still holds the mic in terms mm-hmm. of theology. It, it, you know, you go online and you want to st- study something for free on the internet. It's going to be some American mm-hmm. uh, website um, content creator. And I just pray that uh, we can get better theology to the world that will not slow down the Great Commission. I think the church's big mistake is to look at women through a few controversial restrictive texts that they've probably been misinterpreted rather than looking at women the way Jesus does uh, as his, you know, as his sisters. And, but also through the eyes of the great commission, Mm -hmm. Uh, we need men and women who have been taught teaching others, who've been evangelized, evangelizing others, who've been cared for, caring for others. And uh, this is too much happening on planet earth in in the name of Jesus to slow it down with such uh, misguided theology yeah amen that is a great place to end so taryn um thank you for joining us again i will put links to how god sees women um and to your response to mike winger there's quite a few response videos and articles uh also to your other book what's so amazing about scripture so those yeah. those will be in the podcast notes and thank you i really appreciate this conversation you know, i love getting to to meet you i've I watched so many of your podcasts read so many of your articles read your book Thank you. (laughs) I'm so grateful to Taryn Williams for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, That interview really did uh, mean a lot to me and got me thinking on a lot of great directions. So thanks for listening. Please spread this around, share it on your social media accounts so more can hear. And before we go, one of the things that I used to do, and we've stopped doing it, I'm not quite sure why we stopped, but I used to read some of the great reviews that were coming in for our books every week just to keep that going. And there was one that that was shared on Instagram this week. And I thought I would just end the podcast with this. A woman was talking about the book, She Deserves Better, and she said this, wow, y'all, this book, I I don't think I'm doing the y'all properly. I just, the Canadian in me just can't quite say it, but you know what I mean. Wow, y'all, this book. So I have struggled for years for many reasons, but this book calls out the toxic teachings the church has been using. Sex, self, emotions, having a voice. It was a lot to take in and I couldn't put it down. I have struggled with the church's interpretation and teaching of scripture for quite a while, believing it can't be right, but having no way to push back. Do you know what it does to a person to not trust the church and teachings? It devastates your life. The emotional, spiritual, physical, and sexual consequences are absolutely seemingly insurmountable. I wholeheartedly believe Gregoire's use of scripture is right on, and I actually feel finally like my voice hasn't been wrong. Get this book. So thank you for that. Thank you for putting that up on Instagram. 
you know, when you guys share about our books, that's when people hear about it. This is a totally grassroots movement. Everything we do is grassroots. We don't have a, we don't have big support from big organizations or denominations, but we have you guys. And so when you join our patron, when you rate our podcast five stars and leave a review, when you rate our books and leave reviews, when you tell others about our book, even when you get the great sex rescue toolkit and share it with others, that helps immensely. And that's how we're going to change the church. And ultimately that will be how we change the world. So thank you for being part of the Bear Marriage community and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.